Do you ever wonder what happens behind closed doors of great leaders? If you're a history buff or a fan of biographies, you know part of the fun of reading great people's stories is that they're inspiring. You get a backstage pass to see what was really going on during that stressful moment in the situation room, on the battlefield, or in that critical moment of the movement. Often in those moments, character is revealed. You learn what your hero's thought process was, what led to that decisive moment that changed the course of history, what caused the scales to tip in one direction when it all hung in the balance. We've been following the life of one of ancient Israel's greatest leaders, King David, since we picked up this series again two weeks ago with The Life of David, Volume 2. The biography written about him, 1st and 2nd Samuel, in our Bibles, takes up more narrative than any other person in the Bible besides Jesus. And the passage we're looking at today, we get an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at David's thought process. And it's not even a thought process for David in turmoil. Things are actually going quite well for David. He doesn't have any big looming issues he's facing. But as we'll discover, it's often when things are going well that we may be most vulnerable to missing God's direction. While we may not be ruling an entire nation like David, but each one of us is granted a unique sphere of influence in which we operate and can shape what happens. A home, a family, a church, a school, a workplace, a sports team, a hobby, or volunteer organization, whatever we have been given influence over, it is our responsibility to do so with integrity. And integrity, as we'll see today, includes seeking God for direction and praying with both humility and confidence. In today's passage, David the king becomes David the prayer. We have many of David's prayers recorded in the book of Psalms. John just read, we just prayed one from Psalm 25. It's a great one. But today's passage gives us the heart behind it, the way prayer played itself out in David's life. And whether we're facing a decisive moment in our lives or simply the ordinary everyday life, I think you'll find, as I have, David's prayer a helpful way of reorienting our thoughts on what is both true and reliable. Now the prayer comes to us in response to the events preceding it. So I want us to look at the entire chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to encourage you to follow along in a Bible that you've brought or on your phone. Uh, if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 434. So it's 2 Samuel chapter 7 or page 434 in the Pew Bible. Okay, the chapter can be broken down into three parts. There's David's plan or proposal to build a temple for God in verses 1 to 3. There's God's promise to David in verses 4 to 17. And then there's David's prayer to God in response to that, verses 18 to 29. Because of the amount of verses in this chapter, I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to read excerpts of the verses, inserting some comments along the way. And then when we get to the prayer itself, we'll look a little more closely at what that means for us today. Okay? Okay? Okay. Let's begin with 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 to 3. 
after the king, that's David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Things are actually coming together for David. After nearly 20 years of struggling, hiding, and evading Israel's first king, King Saul, God's promise to David to become king of Israel is finally fulfilled. As John summarized two weeks ago, in the first few chapters of 2 Samuel, David has put Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, in their place. He's consolidated the country, impressively uniting the north and the south after King Saul's death, and he's established a new capital city, Jerusalem. He's also, as Devin taught us last week, brought the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with them, back home, leading the people of Israel in worship to their God, in essence, leading a spiritual revival. But even though he's settled, he's not ready for early retirement. He's at his peak, both in his age and in his ability. So he's looking for the next big project to throw himself into. Given he's just brought the ark back into Israel's possession, it's not surprising he thinks of establishing a more permanent place for it than just a little tent. So he consults his prophet Nathan on the matter. Israel's leaders relied on prophets to help them listen to the voice of God. But this is the first time this prophet is mentioned in the narrative. I'm going to let John give the details in a few weeks when he preaches, but Nathan is going to play a prominent role in the coming chapters when he confronts David for some very poor choices David makes. David's plan seems so pure and right to he and Nathan that Nathan gives the go-ahead. No need to even pray about it. Verse 4 continues, But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying... Now verses 5 to 16 explain how God intervenes in the situation. He does not want David spending time and energy on this project. He's got something else in mind. Verse 17 tells us the next morning, Nathan, ever the faithful prophet, withdraws the building permit. He then tells David exactly what God had told him, that David's building plans for God will get in the way and distract from God's building plans for David. Verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Let's pause there for a moment. Reality check, David. Remember, I'm the one who took you from following around sheep to ruling my people. I have been with you. I am the reason you are so successful. I appreciate the sentiment, David, but you don't need to do me any favors. Or as St. Paul would so eloquently write later in Romans eleven thirty-five, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? It may be genuine and heartfelt that David wants to do something for God, but unlike all the other so-called little gods of the neighboring countries, the Lord Almighty can take care of himself. In fact, God, through Nathan, 
tells David what he is going to do for David. Verse 9. Now I will make your name great, and I will provide a place for my people Israel so they can have a home of their own. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Essentially, God's saying, I'm going to bless my people through you, David. But there's more. Verses 11 to 16. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. My love, we're going to come back to that term, will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, it's not apparent in the English, but the writer is using a wordplay here. House, in Hebrew, can mean temple, but it can, what David wants to build for God, but it can also mean dynasty, legacy. So David will not build a house or temple for God, but God will build a house or dynasty for David. Unlike his predecessor Saul, David's offspring will succeed him on the throne, resume the throne, and his heirs will become king. Now we know from the next few chapters that he's talking about Solomon, who will indeed actually be the one to build this temple David so wants to build. But the promise isn't pointing only to David heir, David's heirs and their legacy of Israel's king. It's also pointing to a later son of David, whose kingdom will never end. It's these verses, among others, that precipitated the hope for the long-awaited one who would come from David's line to rule Israel. So you can bet these verses are ringing in young Mary's ears when in Luke 1.32, the angel Gabriel says to her, she will conceive and give birth to a son, and she is to call him Jesus for... He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, it wasn't apparent to those living in David's time, but for those who witnessed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they saw this promise fulfilled in him. But for David, he is the recipient of a great reversal. He, the aspired giver, becomes the receiver. And why? Because David has done so much for God? No. Remember, God first initiates with David when he was a little teenage boy chasing sheep. He hasn't accomplished anything for God at that point. Because God is faithful to his people, Israel. And because of God's steadfast love, his hesed, his never giving up on you love. As the song from Lamentations 3.22 says, the steadfast love or hesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It is a beautiful thing. And if you have not yet come to know the Lord's never giving up on you love, I hope you do. We don't deserve it, but we can be recipients of it. So that's the plan. 
And that's God's promise to David. How does David respond? We get to hear his response to such stunning grace and undeserved generosity in verses 18 to 29. And the first thing David does in verse 18 is very significant. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now that's a beautiful image, isn't it? The king of Israel sitting before the one true king. Eugene Peterson, author of the message, paraphrase of the Bible, explains in his commentary that this may be the most critical act David ever does. The action that puts him out of the action. By sitting down, he says, David takes himself out of the driver's seat and deliberately places himself prayerfully before God the King. What a beautiful posture for every leader. To sit before the Lord Almighty, to listen, to be directed in our efforts, to be reassured after a tumultuous start, and to reset our thinking, acknowledging that we are first and foremost receivers of all that God has given to us before we ever give or do anything for him. In our society where productivity is valued, prayer is underrated. It seems like a waste of time. It doesn't do anything. Why waste our time? But imagine what might have happened if David hadn't taken time to pray, if he wasn't responsive to Nathan's words. God does not just want us to do stuff for him. He wants us to listen to him, to be with him, to receive the grace he extends us. I wonder how many of our projects we vow to do for God that he never actually authorized. Would that we would all pause and ask God for direction. Would that we would all have a Nathan in our lives to help us discern God's voice. Whether you're in a season where things are going well or whether you're facing big decisions, may we be people who pause to sit before the Lord. If you don't know where to start, the book of Psalms in our Bibles gives us 150 prayers, and John just led us in one of them, Psalm 25. It's a great prayer. So doing the math of 150, you can read five prayers a day for a month, 30 days, and cycle through all of them. You can label Psalm 1 to 5, the first day of the month, Psalm 6 to 10, the second day of the month, and so on and so on. And if you miss a day, it's fine. Sometimes I get stuck in one psalm and sometimes for several days. But over time, those prayers, most of which were written by David, will teach us to pray. Now, if that seems overwhelming to you, just follow the pattern set out by Jesus in what's called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. And you can pray it, inserting your own phrase for each particulars of the day. However we do it, may we be people who stop and pray. But David doesn't just stop and pray. He prays because it reorients our perspective of who we are and who God is. And that is the second point I want to make about David's prayer. If you look at this prayer in its entirety in verses 18 to 29, you'll see this. David uses the phrase, your servant, 10 times in these 11 verses, just about every sentence. It's real clear to him. That while other people may call him king, 
he himself is subject to a far greater king. He addresses God as sovereign Lord some seven times. Sovereign, overall, all-powerful, the one really running the show. And Lord, the one who loves us, the one who, as Psalm 23 suggests, whose goodness and mercy we cannot run, it will always catch up to us. David knows his place before the Almighty One. He prays with humility. Verse 18, who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? And as if that weren't off, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of your house, of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human? What more can I say to you? For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. When things are going well, it's quite tempting to take the credit to assume success, to attribute success to our own competence or hard work or sharp minds. But David has taken God's words through Nathan to heart and he's reminded of the truth. David's success is not the result of his own hard work. It's the result of God's goodness. It is because of God's faithfulness to David that David has come this far. And so David's natural response is, who am I that you, oh God, would be this good to me? I don't deserve this. There are times where you and I have this same reaction, where we are the recipients of a great gift that we know we did not deserve. Where what else is there to say except thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The tumor is benign. The pregnancy test is finally positive this time. The betrayed spouse says she will seek to forgive and reconcile. Anne Lamott's book on prayer called Help, Thanks, Wow, gives a lot of descriptions about this kind of prayer, and I commend it as a way of jump-starting most any prayer life. When we understand we are the recipients of such generosity, such grace, such undeserved favor, the natural response is not only to think of how little we deserve it, but also how great our God is. He is the giver of these gifts. So it isn't just, who am I, that David prays. It's, who are you? Verse 22, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. When faced with an incredible contrast between God's greatness and our insignificance or unworthiness, the only appropriate response is praise. Not feeling guilty, not feeling badly about ourselves, not giving up, but praise. What if our prayers were bathed in such humility and gratitude? What if this week when we prayed, we had the perspective of who we are, your servant, and who God is, sovereign Lord? How might that change how we pray? While at work, Samuel the prophet prays, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. When facing a major interruption and detour in her life she had not planned on, the young Mary tells the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Feeble old Simeon, close to death, 
catches a glimpse of baby Jesus in the temple and prays, Sovereign Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. David, facing both significant work and family pressures, prays, As for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Now it's amazing, but as we look at the entirety of this prayer, David prays with both grateful deference and bold demand, as one scholar notes. Somehow he manages to both yield and insist at the same time. That is because David's response is not only one of gratitude and thanksgiving, but also one of confidence and trust. Because he knows the character of the one who is making this promise, he can take him at his word. And that's the third and final point I want to make today, that David prays with confidence. He doesn't just stop and pray. He prays with humility, and he prays with confidence. Verse 25, and now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made conserving your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. It sounds audacious, doesn't it? Who are we to tell God what to do? But such boldness is actually rooted in total confidence that God is a faithful God. David has come to know this God. He knows God does not renege on his promises. He knows that God can indeed be trusted. And so when God tells David he will do this, David takes him at his word. He trusts God. Now in this unique instance, David had the rare benefit of knowing the specific outcome here. Because God, through Nathan, had told him. But for many other times in David's life, in fact, in the next few chapters, and for most of us here today, God has not promised specific outcomes to us. When we pray, we don't know what will happen. So we cannot be confident of specific outcomes. But we can be confident of God's character We can have confidence that he will keep his promises. And what has he promised? He has promised to be with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Joshua 1.5. Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28.20. He has promised that he has plans for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11. He has promised his love for us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He's promised us the Holy Spirit to empower us and lead us in all truth. And he has promised that one day King Jesus, the only true king, will return to this earth, will restore it, and will rule with justice and peace. So say the angels to the disciples after Jesus was taken up to heaven following his resurrection in Acts 1.11. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. 
So say the prophets, great announcement in Isaiah chapters 9 and 11. For unto us a child is born, a son is given to us. He will reign on David's throne and over all his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so say some of the very last words of the Bible. Behold, I am coming soon. And so until then, we hope, we wait. We trust, we look to him. We have courage to believe in our sovereign Lord that he is both all powerful and all loving. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, whether you're at the top of your game or whether you're in the depths of despair. But regardless, we must all remember our God is a faithful God. His promises are trustworthy. He is the sovereign Lord. He wants to communicate with us and he has promised never to remove his love from us. He is with us. So let's commit again today to seek him when we need direction, to remember his gracious work in our lives and to trust that he will be faithful to us. For as we do, we may find it just might alter the course of our lives in significant ways. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that we have this model prayer, this example of David's prayer. Who are we that you would die for us, that you would love us when we were merely tending sheep, not responsive to you, and who are you, how great you are, God, that time and time again, your love catches up to us. It will not let us go. We will always find forgiveness and grace and mercy with you. How great you are, oh God. You are the sovereign Lord, but Lord, it does not always feel that way. We look at our lives and we look around at this country and this world and we wonder how long, oh Lord, when will you come and make it right? So we ask, by your spirit, convince us of that reality. Help us to live into that reality more and more each day this week for our sake, because it's true and it's the good way to live, and for a watching world that is longing for hope and light and life. We ask this in Jesus' name and only for the greater fame of his name.